and welcome everyone to this special Britcham Indonesia environmental series webinar, The Road to COP26. Those of you that attended our first event on forest restoration will recall that next year there are two crucial UN climate change conferences, one in Italy focusing on the world's youth and the other the main event in Glasgow in the UK that will be attended by the world's leaders. In that context, Britcham Indonesia is very pleased to partner today with the Glasgow Chamber of Commerce and that Chamber 1793 network, which some, some of us participating today, including myself, are members of. I would also like to acknowledge the support of, of the Glasgow Chamber's Circular Glasgow team, with whom Britcham Indonesia will hopefully bring more content to our members here in the future. I would also like to thank Castle Asia and its CEO Forum for supporting today's webinar, as well as our partner Scottish Development International. In our last Road to COP26 event, all of the speakers highlighted the huge increase in the number of companies declaring climate change agendas and or carbon neutral strategies in the last three or four years. Today, it's our pleasure to bring to you two executives from Unilever PLC, a, a company that has embraced such an agenda for an awful lot longer than the last three to four years, and arguably one of the first global organizations to have done so. Joining us today from Unilever are Alan Joe and David Ingram. Alan, who is currently Unilever's Chief Executive Officer, joined Unilever 35 years ago, and during that time has spent 14 years working in North America and 13 years in Asia, amongst other locations. Prior to taking up his current role, his roles included President of the Beauty and Personal Care Division, President of Russia, Africa and the Middle East, President of Unilever's Home and Personal Care Business in North America, as well as a global category leader of several of the company's food businesses. Originally from Glasgow, Alan graduated from Edinburgh University and thereafter the Harvard Business School. Today he joins us from Edinburgh. Dave Ingram has been with Unilever for only 30 years, having worked in the UK, Europe, Mexico, China and Singapore, from where he now oversees Unilever's global procurement function as Chief Procurement Officer. The scope of Dave's, Dave's work covers the sourcing of goods and services to support over 400 brands in 190 countries. Dave is also tasked with delivering ambitious sustainable sourcing strategies as part of Unilever's Sustainable Living Plan. Dave, who is also from Scotland and also studied in Edinburgh, graduating from Heriot Watt University. Today, Dave joins us from Singapore. Welcome, gentlemen. Great to have you. Hi, Ainsley. Nice to be here. Thanks very much for having us. It's a pleasure. Uh, and the same. Thank you, Ainsley. Thank you very much, Dave. We have a lot of questions, so I'd really like to just get into it. But before doing so, um, I would like to invite Alan to set the scene by helping us understand where climate change fits into Unilever's sustainable living agenda, what Unilever's targets are in respect to climate change, and where Unilever currently are in terms of achieving these targets. Maybe, Alan, you could give us a little bit of a background. Yeah, happy to do that, uh, Ainsley. So, uh, Salma Pagi uh, from a very uh, cold, wet, rainy uh, Edinburgh. Salma Malam to our friends in, uh, in Jakarta and around Indonesia. I have many very fond memories of uh, Indonesia. In fact, it might surprise um, people on the call to know that uh, Indonesia is Unilever's fourth largest business uh, worldwide after uh, the US, India, and China. Uh, we have a bigger 
operation in Indonesia than we do, for example, in China. Um, and so I wish the country uh, and I wish everybody who's on the call uh, good health because we are, of course, in a time of, of crisis. We're dealing with simultaneous crises uh, piled on top of each other. We've got a, a biological crisis called coronavirus. With that, there's a social crisis where everyone's lives are being disrupted by being locked down. I think we're on the brink of a, an economic crisis, the, the worst of which is ahead of us, not behind us. And now on top of that, we've got a worldwide um, racial justice crisis that started in the United States. And frankly, we've got a growing geopolitical crisis um, with a retreat away from multilateralism. Um, but first and foremost, this is a human tragedy. People are dying, people are losing their livelihoods, um, and we shouldn't forget that as we go about our business. Um, a quick word about Unilever. Um, we're an old company. Uh, our founders started the businesses that now make up Unilever in about the 1860s. Uh, today, we have a 50 billion, 52 billion euros of turnover. Um, we run the company in three divisions. We call those beauty and personal care, where we sell things like uh, hair care products, skin care products, soaps, etc. We have a, a, 50, a 10 billion euro um, home care business, which is things like laundry detergents and surface cleaners. And we have a 20 billion euro uh, foods and refreshments business. So three divisions, 20 billion euros, 10 billion euros, 20 billion euros. I think Unilever is probably well known for two things. We are unusually internationally diverse. 62% of our sales now comes from outside of Western Europe and North America, uh, which is uh, unusual for a global multinational, which would typically have 60 plus percent of sales coming from Western Europe and North America. And the second thing is we have a very long-standing commitment to sustainable business. And the reason for that is our founders held a belief that is now deeply embedded in the company that when our brands and when we as a company tackle social and environmental issues as we do our business, we become a better, stronger business that puts in better financial performance. And we are extremely concerned at the moment about stumbling from one crisis, coronavirus, straight into other crises uh, caused by um, the issues we have around climate and nature, or indeed the issues around inequality. And so just last month, actually, um, Unilever made an update to the commitments that we've made on, on climate change. Now, they're a bit detailed and a bit complicated, so I'll try and headline the commitments that we've made right now. Um, and, <clears throat> and we can get into a discussion if they're of interest. So we've got three different net zero targets. The first is that we want to be net zero in our operations by 2030. The second is we want to have our full scope emissions by also 2030. And the third is that we want to be net zero from sourcing to sale of our brands by 2039. Um, and those are all unbelievably ambitious. We're not quite sure how we'll get there, but we're determined that we will. Um, the second area that we made commitments is around the area of um, regenerative agriculture, where we already said we want to be uh, deforestation free in our supply chain by 2023, so just around the court corner. But we launched not just a sustainable agriculture code, but a regenerative agriculture code, whereby we hope that through our operations we will increase 
the carbon sinks uh, in the world through nature. And we especially want to do that working with smallholder farmers. Then the uh, next area where we made commitments is around water stewardship, um, where uh, we made a number of, uh, of, of commitments, one of which is that um, we will work towards having fully biodegradable formulations in our products. And the last thing that I'll talk about is um, we also set up a 1 billion euro uh, climate and nature fund over the next 10 years. And that's funded by our brands. And the, the intent is that there'll be a billion euros set aside over 10 years, which our brands will use to drive programs that involve contributing to uh, taking down our carbon footprint, regenerative agriculture and water stewardship. So that gives a little bit of a flavor of Unilever, our, uh, our business, our business in Indonesia, and some of our <clears throat> recent commitments around uh, climate change. Thank you, Alan. Uh, it's quite reassuring to hear that with all these crises uh, going on, you're still committed to, to that agenda. Earlier this year, I, I was in, in Sarong in West Papua, actually with a couple of your colleagues at, at an event. And during that event, I, I got chatting to one of your local sales supervisors. And what struck me about that conversation was how up to speed and how well versed they were with, with, with your agenda on climate change and sustainability. Not all companies have necessarily been able to, to achieve that by instilling it down throughout their workforce. Um, I know you're very much a team player and, and often the credits go to the, the captain of the team. But uh, I, quite interested to understand how you've managed to, to in, get the whole of the Unilever team to work together and, and strive towards the same objectives, because it's not particularly easy. Can you maybe give us some insights into, into how Unilever have gone about that and also why this is so important to your employees? Um, well, that's nice to hear, Ainsley. I've never heard, you haven't told me that story before. And um, first you should uh, slip me her name or his name uh, so I can uh, go and give them a pat on the back. Uh, for representing the company so well. Uh, that's really pleasing to hear. Um, the first thing I would say is um, it has taken years and years and years of commitment to uh, um, have everyone in the organization understand just how important sustainability, responsible business, purposeful brands are to Unilever. Um, you know, it's been around since the formation of the company, but I have to give some credit to my predecessor, Paul Bowman, who really pushed this um, and made it something that Unilever is quite famous for um, uh, externally and internally. Second thing is um, the, there's a very strong business case for sustainability. I'm sure we'll get into this a bit more. This is not philanthropy. We really believe that sustainable business is better business. And the business case comes, for example, from the following angles. Um, we know that our brands that operate on a platform of helping society or the planet grow faster than the rest of the portfolio. We know that sustainable sourcing ultimately takes cost out. And Dave can talk about that. Often there's an initial cost increase and then over time um, you start to see savings going through. It definitely drives innovation, but most importantly, it's a magnet for talent. Young people today want to work for companies that are doing things the, the right way. We have a graduate recruitment program in 54 countries around the world. And uh, in 52 of the 54, we're the, we're the employer of choice 
for graduates leaving university in our sector. Um, that was only about 17 countries um, just a few years ago. And the reason why um, we think we've become an employer of choice is because um, of our sustainability commitments. F final point is it took years of trying to drive this for it. So anyone who thinks you can embed a sustainable business agenda or a climate change agenda in a big organization in a matter of weeks or months, uh, our experience was not that. Three or four years in to the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan that we launched 10 years ago, three or four years in, people were still questioning, is this something that's gonna stick or not? Now, if we tried to change it, we would have a revolution on our hands because we've got a whole generation of people who have joined the company precisely because of our commitment to sustainable business. Yeah, I, I agree with you. When I'm now recruiting people, it's not so much about the salary, so to speak. It's often about the company values and what we stand for. And I'm forever challenged. So it's, uh, it's good to hear that it's working for you. And, and Ainsley, that'll only, that'll only endure yeah. If it's not a bolt-on on top of the company, you have to believe that it drives better performance. Otherwise, it becomes just the theme du jour. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And the other thing is, the other point you mentioned was it drives innovation. The innovation is not necessarily coming from the top. It's coming from, from all angles within, within a company that's done this well. Yeah, uh, I'll give you one, one example of that then maybe turn over to Dave is, you know, most of us, the, the way we get our water is by uh, going to the bathroom or the kitchen and turning the tap on. Um, but in many parts of the world, people still have to carry their water, you know, half a kilometer or a kilometer um, in large parts of South Asia, large parts of Africa. And uh, imagine in that context that you innovate with a laundry detergent that rinses away with one bucket of water instead of three buckets of water. Well, if you've got it, I don't know if you last time you carried two buckets of water half a kilometer, but that's a pretty meaningful innovation um, uh, driven by, you know, water savings, uh, but also driving consumer preference. Thank you. Dave, uh, you and I are both members of the supply chain, chain trade union, so to speak. And some of these objectives that Alan has highlighted. You probably have to then distill them down to your supply base, which is easier said than done. Um, can you maybe discuss some of the challenges you face um, pursuing this agenda with your supply supply base? Maybe give some examples of, of where you've had a great deal of success. Yeah, look, uh, thanks, Ainsley. Uh, the um, I think there's sort of three areas where we we find challenges, um, and there's one sort of common. Uh, answer to those. Um, the first area is just in the simple different degrees of maturity that we have across the supply base. Um, from companies who are just the sort of rung one of the ladder, just starting to understand um, the language, the context, what it means, right through to companies who are really much more developed. Um, I just by chance had a discussion with BSF last week uh, one of our divisional presidents and I, um, and they were announcing to us their own carbon commitments, science-based targets, um, and that's exactly what we're looking for. But the range, as you can imagine, between uh, the first rung and someone like BSF or Dow is huge. Um, and so there's a big education to, to, be, to be done. Secondly, um, there's a reality of complexity. So if you take um, some of our 
probably more agricultural-based products. The complexity of the chain is enormous. If you take palm kernel supply chain, which has got probably nine different ownership steps through that chain, or our fragrance and flavors business, where you know I was again last week actually in Edinburgh talking to IGS who are doing um, a vertical farming systems. And they're supplying a, a converter who supplies a fragrance house, who supplies us. So these chains are really, uh, really complex in many cases, particularly agriculturally. And fundamental challenge within that is the sharing of data. Mm. So how do we get a system? Uh, how do we extend blockchain, not just financially, but how do we extend that to be a chain of custody uh, beyond finance, into carbon, into social needs? so that we can properly govern uh, and ensure the system. And the, the one answer I had, or the generic answer, is really about partnerships. This is only going to be done if we do this in partnerships across that chain. And that, that's what we're really trying to do with our work, whether it be on palm, on cocoa, uh, even on very local to Indonesia, coconut sugar work we're doing with the farmers, something like 30,000 farmers that we're working with directly to look at um, a, how, they improve, how they improve their yields and operation, uh, all with a, a mission to ensuring our supply and the resilience of our supply, the sustainability of that supply, both for ourselves in terms of carbon, but also for themselves in terms of income, uh, which is uh, really important. So that, that partnership piece is gonna be critical across much of this agenda. Thanks, David. I see we've got quite a few questions coming in on AI and tech and also smallholders, and I think we'll, we'll probably address a few of them later in the Q&A. Alan, I'd like to get back to um, another of your stakeholder groups, the, the consumer. When I look at a lot of companies that have adopted climate change programs, I'm not entirely convinced that they resonate with their customer base. Um, and too often, they may be just seen as CSR, contemporary buzzwords. I think that's unfortunate. How have you gone about making it very relevant to your consumers? Okay, um, so let me uh, tackle it the following way. The first thing is, it is absolutely crystal clear to us that we will not succeed long-term as a business if all we do is talk about washing your clothes whiter, making your skin softer, or making your meals tastier. People care about other attributes and our purpose-led brands are at the moment growing 60 or 70% faster than the rest of the portfolio. They now make about 50 to 60% of our turnover, actually it's 60% of our turnover and are growing much faster than the rest of the business. Second thing, and this is, um, we're quite public about this, which is odd because it is our secret recipe, um, which is a lot of brands go on television and start shouting about, you know, Black Lives Matter or Save the Orangutans or whatever the issue du jour is, where they haven't done a thing about it. And when you get that disconnect between what a brand is saying and what a brand is actually doing, um, people can, consumers can smell it from, customers can smell it from a thousand faces and it doesn't smell very nice. So the only reason why uh, a brand like Dove can talk about girls' self-esteem is because we've now worked with 50 million girls in one-on-one -on -one, uh, sessions, uh, explaining issues around body image, 
unreal realistic beauty ideals, uh, etc. And so we've got the authentic authenticity to talk, therefore, about real beauty and diverse images of beauty. The only reason why uh, domestics can campaign for um, decent sanitation for everyone is because we've put 25 million toilets into homes uh, around the world. The only reason why Lifeboy can talk uh, about saving the lives of kids under the age of five from preventable diseases is because we've now educated a billion people on proper hand washing. And the list goes on, the actions that Hellman's is taking on food waste, the action that Nora is taking on plant-based nutrition. And so uh, it takes years of doing those types of actions before you can authentically talk about it in your brand communication and advertising. And so when you put those two things together, number one, we're 100% convinced that consumers, especially young consumers, really care about these issues. And number two, the brand say cannot come and run ahead of the brand do, and they need to be doing things. That's how we make it relevant um, for our customers. Thanks, Alan. And we have some of your younger consumers coming on later, so we can maybe test the theory. It'll be good. Yes. Uh, Dave, I just I want to call you up on, on uh, one point. Recently, Unilever made an announcement regarding 100% use of renewable energy from the grid to your various facilities around the world. To those of us in Indonesia, this was somewhat difficult to understand given that the power distribution here is controlled by a state monopoly that takes most of it, where most of the feedstock is from coal. So can, can you explain in the context of Indonesia how that claim stands up? Sure, well, let me start. The, globally, each of our factories um, started, I'm gonna say seven or eight years ago, developing decarbonization roadmaps. So every single one of our 240 odd factories has a decarbonization map. And those things are the standard things you would see in a factory, uh, biomass development, heat recovery, um, anaerobic digesters, all those good practices, as well as just operating our lines efficiently so we're not wasting um, uh, product energy or, or people. Um, and if I narrow down into one of our largest factories globally, is as you well know, sitting just outside Jakarta and Chikarang, um, the complex uh, has been working on this agenda for uh, the last seven, eight years and has been one of our leading lights in terms of decarbonization. So it was one of our first facilities to have full biomass as renewable energy for its plant um, and has also gone a, a, a full scale on anaerobic digestion. And that in itself um, accommodates about just under 70% of our need in Chikarang through biomass. The remainder of that need, of course, we're, we're operating with the uh, national state provider, the one you're probably meant, you're referring to, and we're working with them on the development of certificates. So they are, um, have been developing uh, recyclable energy uh, certificates. We're working with them on making sure that they are uh, accredited as part of what you'll know as the global and Clean Energy Investment Accelerator and Network, which governs certificates. So around 70% of our factories are covered by our own energy management and biomass. The remainder Dave, is coming might be, from... Uh, sorry to interrupt, Dave. It might be useful for some of the attendees if you just explained a little bit what biomass is. It's not, it's not particularly okay. intuitive concept. We'll do, we'll do. 
So biomass um, uh, changes slightly by country. Um, in uh, China, for example, we take peanut uh, shells, used peanut shells, crushed um, uh, and formed, and we take, put them into a, re a converted boiler and use that for 90% of our energy when we're making laundry. Um, in Indonesia, I'm not exactly sure what we use. Uh, it'll be something used agricultural, the husks um, of industry in agriculture goes into a converted boiler and creates our energy uh, for us. It's particularly um, useful, the boiler design, uh, useful in our laundry manufacturing. And of course, that's one of our heaviest energy usages within a factory. It's, I just wish that the, the PLN here would embrace renewable energy a bit more. Some of us are in that sector, still struggling to get projects uh, going. Uh, Indonesia is well behind its targets in, in developing renewable energy. It's good to see that uh, the progress that you've been made. Um, a lot of questions are going to come in on agricultural sustainability. And I mean, Indonesia is particularly challenged. It's still got high population growth rates, one of the, the highest rates of urbanization anywhere in the world. Uh, maybe Dave, can you give us a little insight into your sustainable agricultural policy and really what that means? Because yeah. uh, and the pressure on land use here is, is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so we launched what we call our Sustainable Agricultural Code 10 years ago. Um, and it was developed at the time because we weren't seeing in the, in the, the marketplace a common code that was stretching enough in terms of uh, sustainable agriculture. And the, the outcomes of that code were designed to effectively um, include farmers and improve yields um, so that we didn't increase land usage and we also maintain the farmer and the system because their income was being improved. And that's uh, been developed in the last 10 years really successfully, and we've been very happy with it. As Alan mentioned earlier, we've um, improved upon that and we we're, were launched a few weeks ago, our regenerative agricultural code, which adds three main elements to that uh, sustainable code. It adds an uh, element of biodiversity, uh, an element of soil health, and water usage uh, within farming. Now we've seen huge benefits of this across across the world, huge yield improvement, whether it's our tomato supply in India, where we've used 50% less water um, in our Kassan brand by uh, working with farmers on how to irrigate. Um, gherkin supply, would you imagine it? Also 25% improvement in yield and gherkins. But if I take it back to home base in Indonesia, I mentioned coconut sugar before. We're working with about 6,000 of our 30,000 farmer base in coconut sugar, uh, replanting dwarf plants. Uh, we've been doing this now for five years and we're harvesting the first of those um, in a very small scale this year. But obviously the ambition of this is to improve yield. Uh, we get something like 40% more yield from a dwarf plant than a tall plant. But of course, safety. So coconut sugar farmers are climbing up and down trees twice a day to collect the, uh, the, the sap of the, of the coconut. So we improve safety. And because they're climbing up and down, the youth don't want to get into that type of work. So we're also, um, by having the dwarf trees, maintaining an industry and maintaining talent coming into that industry to farm. 
Um, so huge improvement in terms of yield and maintenance and sustainability of the long-term industry, focused around coconut sugar in that example. And of course, we're doing a huge amount of work with our half a million farmer base in Indonesia on palm in terms of yield management um, on palm and, and really including many more of the smallholder farmers who typically operate with a 20 to 30% lower yield than industrialized uh, palm management. Just out of curiosity, in terms of the smallholder farmers you've been working with, uh, for the period you've been working with them, do you get any statistics on, on the level of improvement you've made to the productivity? Yeah, now I may get my numbers slightly wrong here, but uh, you move the yield per, per acre from something like four and a half uh, uh, tons per acre to about the optimal around seven. So you're getting a, subs a substantial improvement. And the four and a half would be the worst and the seven would be the best, of course. But you're getting a, a range of improvement in that. But just that alone, that, that improvement alone will suffice the growth needs um, within the same hectare, not requiring any further planting uh, for, the, for the next good number of decades. So it's really important to us that we do do that work in terms of yield development. Around 40% of palm across Malaysia and Indonesia is operated by smallholder farmers. So if we can improve the yield, you know, 20, 30, 40%, for that 40%, we, we put enormous capacity into the market uh, without, without impacting on land use. Sure. Uh, the last question that I have before we go to um, the other people that are attending is for Alan. I understand that Unilever have an internal carbon tax. And the last that I read, that was valued at uh, $40 per tonne. I think a lot of people listening won't really understand how people arrive at a value for an for a internal carbon tax. Many companies have got completely different values. Can you maybe just explain a little bit about why you did that, how you arrive at the value, and then what do you do with the tax? Yeah, um, so Ainsley, um, I don't know how wide to frame this, but it's certainly true that capitalism 2.0 is going to have to price in externalities like the waste footprint of a business, um, some of the social impacts, and certainly the carbon impact. So we, uh, un rather unusually, we do call for a public price on carbon. We want to see uh, carbon taxes, carbon trading, carbon credits um, brought in by more and more governments. Um, meanwhile, uh, we've introduced our internal uh, carbon pricing, as you, uh, as you point out. Now, there are various ways you can put a price on a ton of carbon. And typically, at the moment, the range is between 30 and 70 uh, US dollars a ton. Uh, we're at the moment, I think it's gone up. I think we're now charging $50 uh, yeah. a ton yeah. um, on our internal carbon. And basically, whenever we've got a new capital project that we're proposing, we price into that, that capital project um, the carbon impact. The money then gets uh, taken and deployed into a fund inside the company and is used for some of our sustainable initiatives where we need to invest uh, up front. So if we want to invest in more bio uh, boilers of the types that Dave indicated, or if we want to do some experiment on regenerative agriculture, 
And I, th I think we've got about 150 or 200 million euros a year that we're generating through our internal carbon pricing that, uh, that is then used to pioneer new low carbon technologies uh, inside the company. But that's honestly small beer. The real issue is getting governments to put in place um, some effective form of carbon pricing so that whole industries shift away from high carbon to low carbon footprint technologies. Thank you, Alan, I agree with you. We may get onto that last point a little bit later. What I'd like to do now is invite uh, three special guests to, to come up on board and ask Alan and Dave questions. They are all pupils at the British School here in Jakarta. The first is Sky Evans, and I think Sky is in year seven going into year eight. Second is Jun Sakamoto, who's currently in Japan. She just graduated from the school. And the third is Patricia Wijaya. And what I want to do is I want to ask Sky to ask his question first. Alan and Dave will answer, then we'll go to June and Patricia because their question is on a similar subject. So, Sky, are you there? How are you? Good. Okay. All right. I'll, I better tell Alan and Dave uh, that they need to strap themselves in. This could get a bit turbulent. So, oh, looking forward. This is the best bit, Ainsley. Right. You started for 10. What, what, what uh, football top is, is Sky wearing? Dundee United. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, I was going to say it's Dundee wow. United, isn't it? Well played. Okay, Sky. Um, fire away with your question for the two gents. Okay. Sky, can you see uh, my football top there? It's a bit shiny, but that's a football top up there, uh, which is the Singapore British Club uh, football uh, team, which is, I think we would actually beat Dundee United right now. <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy that comment. His father's behind him there. <laughs> right. Okay, Sky. Could you tell me what Unilever's policy towards plastic? What are you doing to remove plastic waste? Yeah, um, I thought that might be the first question up. Uh, and I'll not deal with sachets right now, but uh, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. So Unilever uses about 700,000 tons of plastic a year. And we recently made um, two commitments. Uh, the first commitment is that um, we would, by 2025, which is right around the corner, uh, make sure that 50% of our plastic comes from recycled material so that we would uh, use recycled plastic in our products. Um, and the second is that we would, the second big commitment is that we would um, participate in collecting up more tons of plastic um, than we actually use. And the, the thinking behind these two commitments is a concept called circularity. Plastic's actually a very good material. We'd all be in deep trouble without plastic. Um, if anyone, God forbid, has to have a medical procedure, you would not be happy um, if there wasn't plastic available to uh, help in the medical procedure. The problem is that too much plastic um, ends up in the environment instead of staying in the economy. And the solution for that is to try to uh, create um, a system that recaptures plastic and recycles it and reuses it. And I could talk a lot more about something, maybe we'll stay on plastic and we'll get a bit more into it. But the start point is we're gonna, um, we're gonna move to using recycled material and we're gonna make sure that we're gathering up as much as we're using so that net, uh, it's all in a, a circular system 
and not getting dumped in uh, landfill and into the oceans. Thank you, uh, Alan. Uh, Dave and I have spoken about this quite a few times. One of the big problems here is just the collection. Yeah. The systems yes. for collection are, they do not function properly and it's, it, it's a never increasing challenge. Um, it's getting that, um, as you say, the circularity uh, is really important, but it's, it's only driven if there's a financial gain to actually collecting. And one of the biggest challenges we have, whereas you know, in India, we, we collect um, all types of plastic, everything we put in, we collect at the, at the same percentage because there's a monetary value, there's a value to what you collect, which we really struggle in in other markets, Indonesia being one of them, uh, for our more complex plastics. So if somebody collects it, can they actually sell it to someone else? Um, is a real challenge. Okay, uh, June and Patricia, can I ask June, can you ask your question first and then immediately afterwards, Patricia, you ask your question and we'll let the two gents decide who's going to answer. So June, you're first. Hello. Um, in your opinion, how important is safeguarding of the local or indigenous communities in achieving Unilever's sustainability goals? Safeguarding as in protecting the social and economic well-being of the people, like those in the palm oil production communities around Indonesia? Great. Um, how can you make sure palm oil plantations in Indonesia are strictly following the RSPO guidelines and policy? Well, these, are high, these are very, very high quality questions, if I may say. All three questions are very good questions. And uh, Dave knows a lot more about palm oil than I do. Yeah, and so, talking Glasgow, Alan, um, I put things in context. I think there's eight to nine million people employed directly into, in palm oil in Indonesia. <laughs> And, and many times that, uh, whose, whose livelihoods are dependent on it. So it's, it's a major, major issue. Let me say just a few words of context, then I'll hand over to Dave to talk about it in detail. First thing is, in most of the world, palm oil is becoming a demonized material. Um, people are saying we should boycott palm oil, we shouldn't use anything with palm oil in it. <coughs> and that is, terrible because the alternatives to palm oil require far more land and the world would not be able to feed itself without massive deforestation if we moved from palm oil to other types of uh, material like soy or rapeseed oil etc which take eight nine ten times as much land as uh, as palm oil so that's the first thing is it's a great material um, uh, second thing I would say is we do believe in uh, protecting the livelihoods, therefore, of the uh, smallholder farmers in particular who depend on, on palm. And Dave's done a lot of work in this space, and Dave, I'll hand over to you to talk a bit about smallholder, farmer, uh, smallholder farmers, palm oil, and the questions from June and Patricia. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Um, and look, they are really really good questions because at the center of much of my day week and month in terms of uh, workload in, in, in my side of the business um so just to add a bit more context um Ainsley was mentioning eight or nine million people we believe in indonesia alone we've got about half a million farmers directly um associated with our volume so that the salaries are paid by our volume 
that we take. So they're an essential part of our supply chain. And as I mentioned before, unless we can get their um, uh, yields up, uh, their, their finances that they take in, their, their salary every month is sustainable and is a good one that they don't go to some other uh, job. Um, it's essential for us, for our own, making sure we get our volumes next week and next month, that they have a job, that they have uh, social rights, that they have land rights, um, I, and that they want to be in this industry because it gives them a good salary every week and month. So the work we're doing, and I'll link the two questions if I can. Um, the RSPO has been a body that's been, I think, around 15 years, and it's been really positive and instrumental in driving a more sustainable palm production. So that's the first thing to say. It's, it's been a good thing that we've had a RSPO for the last 15 years because it has driven a lot of good. What we've realized though is it does not guarantee a deforestation because until we know in our language that the farm, the field and the farmer that we source from, every single kilo of uh, palm, until we know that, we can't guarantee uh, uh, non-deforestation. So our, our commitment that we made is to do that, is to understand exactly where we're sourcing from for every kilo that we source um, by knowing the farm, the field and the farmer. And by doing so, we can actually work much better with the farmers. We can work on their yield when we know who they are. We can work on their human rights and social rights and salary when we know who they are. But to do that, it's going to take an awful lot of technology to help us. Um, and you'll have heard, I think, of blockchain and how um, finance and cost goes through a chain from a farmer to a trader to a mill to a refiner to Unilever. So we're working with different technology companies to get that chain uh, secure financially and also secure in knowing that our volumes that we think are coming from that field actually come to our factory in Samanke. So that's a really important piece that we're working on right now is the technology that allows us to visualize, to see the farm, the field and the farmer, ensure they're getting paid the right wage and ensuring their ton of uh, palm gets to our facility in Samanke. Thank you, Dave. You know, uh, in, in, I, would say, uh, I think what people understand is just how productive that, that particular uh, plant is compared to the alternatives. And certainly, any time I engage people back home, they really have no idea. Yeah. Sorry, Alan mentioned the eight or nine times, and indeed, whenever we look at it, we look at coconut oil alternatives uh, coming from also this side of the world, and they're substantially more impactful on land wherever we look. Um, and it is an education that uh, we really do need to get into more and more people. Yeah. That it's about managing palm uh, sustainably and well today. It's not about moving into other crops that are substantially more impactful on the land. Thanks. I see Asti seems to have blocked out uh, Patricia, June and, uh, and Sky. Uh, I'd like to thank all three of you for your questions. And I know June is off to study in the UK in architecture. So I wish you all the best in, in that career. And uh, Gabriel, I look forward to seeing Dundee United play Alan's team from Singapore. <laughs> Once again, thank you very much. Can we have our next three questioners, please? Are they all online? Have we got 
there we are. First one is Dr. Mary Mulyani. Mary's a friend of mine. She teaches at both Oxford University and the University of Indonesia uh, in environmental science, environmental policy, and diversity. So I believe she knows a lot more about this subject than, than most of us. Mary, please fire away with your questions. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Ansley, for facilitating this discussion, which is really important. And my compliments also go to both speakers for outlining Unilever's commitment to climate change mitigation and also adaptation efforts. So I'm very interested when you mentioned about water stewardship program. So back to Jakarta, for example, um, I think the latest data shows that around only 20% of Jakarta inhabitants having access to a piped water system which you know leave the rest to consume contaminated groundwater. Uh, so in regard to your water stewardship program, what, what action have Unilever team in Jakarta cooperate you know, with other organizations to improve access to clean water for communities? And if I may, in you know, in relation to this issue. Every year, actually, many of my are masters and doctorate students at the University of Indonesia School of Environmental Science conduct research project, which focus on water quality measurement, also technology and infrastructure to improve uh, water quality and access to communities. Um, my question would be, how might our university and Unilever cooperate and join force in finding a solution to this most pressing matter, both in Jakarta capital and in Indonesia at large. Thank you. Yeah, so shall I? Go ahead, Dave. Okay, um, so I think we look at this in three ways. We look at it um, in terms of uh, reducing the amount of water our products need when they're being used. Uh, we look at it in our own facilities, ensuring that water, water usage is to an absolute minimum and we reduce, reuse or recycle as much as possible. And we, we've started to look at access programs for communities around our facilities. And let me just go one layer down for each of those three. So I think Alan mentioned uh, an, an example of where our products have reduced um, water usage by, by a third. In fact, in, in Indonesia, the Molto brand in Indonesia in 2009 um, introduced uh, uh, this product and is now using exactly a third of what it was using before um, in terms of uh, uh, consumer use. Our factories, particularly our Chikaran factory, has done a lot of work in terms of reducing its water usage, uh, investment in waste, uh, wastewater treatment plants so that we can reuse that water in our own manufacturing. And so we get as much as possible a closed cycle um, within our own factory. And we've started to, as part of the commitment, you may have saw a couple of weeks ago, um, work in a radius around our factories with the communities in terms of improving their access to water. We did start this a number of years ago, actually, in Palembang in South Sumatra. Um, and we're reinvigorating that program right now around Chikarang um, facility. 
You know, Mary, um, uh, we acknowledge that 40% of the world does not have access to decent quality water. Um, and it's a huge, huge problem. And without um, a world where there's a reliable, safe supply of water, there's no good business for Unilever. So we're very committed to this. But it's one of those problems where there's uh, no way we can tackle this on our own. It's going to require partnerships between uh, government, um, <clears throat> the private sector, uh, academia and NGOs uh, to get on with this. And um, there's so much we can do within our own operations where, quite frankly, we've got a very clean uh, uh, picture now. But the real issue is what that last point that Dave finished on, which is we made a commitment that we want um, 100 communities around the world we will work with um, to secure uh, decent water supplies for the community. And frankly, I don't know if uh, um, Southern Jakarta is one of those. I would imagine, given the importance of our uh, business in Indonesia to us, it will be. But there's a limit to what we can do as a pri one private sector actor or require strong collaborative partnerships, which I think is the point you were getting at with your question, actually. Yes, I mean, I can also just briefly share with you here that uh, one of the classic challenges within the academia is, you know, relating to science communication, where our research may not necessarily respond to the core needs of appropriate stakeholders, including state institutions and also private sector. So yes, Alan, I mean, enhancing cooperation and coordination between academia, private sector, and state institutions, I think, is key if we, you know, if we are to achieve overarching goals, including your 100 communities uh, point of access to water. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Um, Ivy, Ivy is well known to many of us here in Britcham. She's uh, the honorary consul in, in Surabaya and East Java, and also runs a logistics company. That she was telling us earlier, has been doing work for Unilever for 40 years. Yes, thank you, uh, Ainsley. Hi, uh, Alan and Dave. Just a question, uh, since my background in logistics, if I may ask, because in Indonesia, there's a lot of things have been done for, um, you know, giving this a switching more efficient, um, in, in terms of transport, we switching more efficient, environmental friendly transport. And then a lot of people here also, you know, we adopt the, um, the green logistics more, you know, more electric, but in, in your experience, is there any more sustainable like transport and logistic, you know, um, being implemented elsewhere that might be adopted here in Indonesia? Thank you. That's coming your way, Dave. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, look, I think, in fact, most um, countries are in a relatively similar state. Uh, you may get some more development in North America that we're working with through a partnership. We have... Um, uh, there that's looking at um, see three different formats, electric, uh, hydrogen, I can't remember the third one was, uh, technology for trucks. So, but it's still, to be honest, fairly nascent. Um, we're not using it widespread. There's pilots and trials in various locations. The primary thing we're trying to do in, in terms of efficiency is making sure that we're, we're planning our load management much more efficiently so that we're not sending trucks half full to the wrong place and then shipping product back again, which um, a, in a market that is highly volatile um, a, is, is 
quite a challenge. So again, similar to, to what I said with, with respect to agriculture, a lot of the work we're doing is actually in terms of technology, uh, planning technologies and predictive technologies and sensing technologies to understand um, what we should be sending where um, uh, for efficiency reasons uh, in logistics. So there is a piece of work in terms of the technology of the truck. Uh, it seems fairly nascent in most of the markets, but there's a lot of quite developed technology in terms of sensing and helping us plan and ship and load um, trucks around the world. And that's certainly something which is scalable uh, rapidly. Dave, let me um, say one word of context for Ivy, uh, which is if you look at Unilever's um, greenhouse gas footprints or carbon footprint, um, it's quite shocking um, where our carbon footprint actually sits. 24% of the carbon emissions come from raw material sourcing. So everything we just discussed about palm oil and other agricultural and uh, chemical materials. 66% of our, ca our carbon footprint is in consumer use, which is more or less the energy that's used to heat up the water that's used to cook our products or to uh, wash your hair or wash your skin or wash your clothes. <clears throat> Only 1% of our carbon footprint is associated with manufacturing, 3% with distribution, and 5% with retail. So it's very important that we take advantage of all the technologies on logistics and distribution that we move towards electric vehicles, that we use um, big data sets to plan our logistics more efficiently. Um, but even if we cut our carbon footprint there in half, it would be a relatively small contribution compared to actions that we can take on raw material sourcing or especially moving to the green grid and Ainsley's instincts earlier on that systemic change of the grid is the most important thing that can happen uh, is very accurate. So I'll just share that to put it in context. Right, right. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you, Alan and Dave. One point I would mention here in Indonesia, uh, Dave and I obviously spent time in, in China running a supply chain network. And a big barrier here, I think, is infrastructure. The infrastructure development is not at the same pace as other countries. And where you see infrastructure development moving at a rapid pace encourages logistics companies to invest in new technology because they yeah. can immediately make productivity gains. But it's very difficult here. That's true. Thank you. Helping out there, Ivy. Keep your costs high. Your, your charges to the high. <laughs> Thank um, you. Our, our last guest uh, questioner is all the way from Glasgow, and it's Cheryl McCulloch, who's a senior project manager at the Glasgow Chamber of Commerce. And she's got a specific program, Circular Glasgow. Um, Hello, Cheryl. How are you? Hello. Hello. I'm good. And thank you to Ainsley and to the team um, and to all the speakers. It's been fantastic to hear everything today. Um, it's been really um, informative in terms of both Unilever and I suppose some of that bigger picture stuff that you were speaking about, Ainsley. Um, so I wanted to change tack slightly. Um, obviously, the, the sort of theme around this series is looking at COP26. And as a city, Glasgow, um, you know, in the Chamber of Commerce, we're absolutely delighted that we are, that the city's hosting COP26 next November. Um, Glasgow itself is working towards some really challenging climate targets itself, you know, 2030, um, with ambitions to become a leading circular economy city. Um, so what are your hopes and aspirations for COP26 and for Glasgow? 
and um, what role do you foresee Unilever playing and, and how do you intend to embrace circular economy within that? Um, well, that's about six questions there, Cheryl. Um, I, I thought uh, I would challenge you since I was the last one. <laughs> um, well, let me just say, um, when COP26 is a big success, it will be a big success for Glasgow. So um, our focus is not so much on the kind of Glasgow angle. It's more about making COP26 successful. Um, the headline is we've got to get back on track for the Paris Agreement commitments. And we are not on track right now. We're miles off. In fact, um, uh, Paris set the goal that we would uh, see temperature rises of not more than 2%. I think the latest view is one and a half is where we need to uh, aim. And we're currently on track for about 4% increase uh, by 2050 in uh, temperatures versus pre-industrial levels and that is absolutely dangerous. I mean it'd be catastrophic for the world if that happened. Um, so the first thing that um, needs to happen at COP26 is to get governments to recommit to the national targets that add up to two or minus or one and a half percent uh, uh, degrees of global warming. I think the special role that Glasgow can play is to have then businesses commit so if, if Paris was all about governments committing, Glasgow should be all about businesses committing. And um, we're working, uh, I was working quite closely with Claire and now that she's moved on working quite closely with Alok uh, Sharma to try to figure out um, what that role can be. Uh, and I think what Unilever can do is first of all, set a good example and we have set strict science-based targets that comply with one and a half degrees warming. Um, and we can set a good example on that. My own view is what the <clears throat> what needs to happen is we should have a sector by sector approach, whereby the organisers of COP26 say, right, in the heavy industry sector, you you bunch of companies get together and you give us your commitments, and in the uh, professional services, give us your commitments, and in manufacturing, you know, Unilever get together critical mass of manufacturing. Um, and uh, sector by sector, we can make our commitments. So if we do that, if we can get, if we focus on climate change, if we focus on governments recommitting to the targets that they already set are drifting away from for Paris, and if on top of that, we get business at scale committing to those science-based targets, then Glasgow will be a success. Let's hope it is a success. Thank you very much. Um, I'm conscious that we've now run over time. Um, I would like to thank Alan and Dave. Thank you very much for joining us today. I know your schedules are very busy. Um, Pleasure. Everyone who joined us to ask questions. A lot of other people put questions in the Q&A box, but I think actually most of the subjects were covered uh, by, by Alan and Dave in some respect uh, during the course of the last, uh, the last hour. Um, Thank you to all the attendees and to our partners. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the things that came out, uh, came across today from, from Unilever is you have the right attitude, you can make things happen. And, and given the scale of their business, some of the figures they gave us regarding the amount of smallholders are working with in Indonesia, note, although it's a big task, put your mind to it, hopefully things can get done. So that's, that's very encouraging. Thank you. Alan, thank you Dave, very much, Ainsley. Thank you very much. We'll see you on the, the other side. Hopefully. Okay. Thanks, Ainsley. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Bye bye.